are here and I'm back at Money 2020, um, but this time on Blockchain Insider and I'm joined by uh, Marco Santori. How are you, Marco? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Uh, so for our listeners that may live under a rock and may not have heard of you, do you want to just remind everybody who you <laughs> sure. are? Sure. Uh, blockchain, you can find us at blockchain.com. Uh, we're the largest uh, software platform for digital assets. But realistically, most people know us from uh, two of our market-leading products. We have the largest wallet in the world, going to be 30 million wallets before the end of the year, and uh, our charts and research information services. So charts and graphs and all kinds of information about cryptocurrency networks. You can go to blockchain.com and find it all. You can see real live data about everything happening in some of the major blockchains around the world, which I think is kind of an interesting perspective because you certainly can't do that in the banking industry. Yeah, um, exactly. That's that transparency that we're always that we're always pitching right in this in this space. Indeed. So um, earlier today, you spoke to uh, the General Counsel for the Department of the Treasury in the United States, and you guys had a bit of a conversation. We'll get to that later, but um, I'm interested in your reflections on more broadly where the industry's at. You know, the crypto industry has had you know, a heck of a 2017. 2018, we've seen a lot of sideways movement in the markets, but we've seen a lot of regulators announcing stuff all over the world um, that uh, you know kind of put a damper on it. And we may see you know, more uh, actions uh, against some less than reputable ICOs, but there are some big names out there um, that maybe uh, you know continue to thrive and survive. Where do you see us at from a from a theme and a trend perspective in the industry right now? Well, I think that the regulatory wheel turns slowly, but it turns. And it's a wheel that started turning many years ago, and mostly around the money services piece. But nobody was talking about the securities laws or anything like that. People were focused on, am I a money transmitter? Do I need licenses in the state level? Do I need an e-money license in Europe? Um, and... Now, right, that conversation has shifted completely, such that what we're talking about is, golly, am I selling a security? Uh, is it the SEC I should be worried about? Do I need a registration statement in place? Because if so, I'm obviously not going to do this. And so 2017 really just saw this sort of uh, rash of what we called uh, pre-functional token sales. Uh, and about, uh, gosh, I want to say November or December-ish, we saw that start to drop off precipitously as people started started to use SAFTs, simple agreements for future tokens, um, to sell really only to accredited investors. And once that started, the sort of public, uh, all of the public aura around ICOs started to die away. Until now, we've we've seen very 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 few. Well, it kind of became this. Uh on one side, it became democratization of access to investments by people who thought they'd missed out on the internet boom and wanted to get into the next big thing. But on the other hand, you know, there were some, without question, some uh, shady ICOs, people looking to scam people and uh, you know, investor protections are there for a reason. So as we look forward, can we still have that democratization piece? Can you still have something that looks like crowdfunding that you know, really allows the retail investor in on some level, but has a level of protection whereby they're not going to lose their shirt every time they try and buy into something. Yeah, I think that we can. And uh, it's a delightful segue into uh, a product that we've just launched. One of, one of our first products actually at blockchain.com in a very long time. Uh, and that's our airdrops framework. So uh, we've announced, uh, we've published our guiding principles around blockchain airdrops. And remind listeners what an airdrop is. I'm assuming most listeners know, but it's probably worth just doing a quick reminder. Sure. Yeah, so an airdrop is when a token-based network creator 
distributes the tokens, the network tokens, to uh, directly to end users so that end users can actually use the token, which is, it varies, uh, I should say, it, it can be distinguished from, say, an ICO, right? In an ICO, uh, members of the retail public pay money, something valuable, for something that isn't yet valuable. And there are uh, investment risks there. There are investor-like risks where somebody is putting their capital at risk. In a blockchain airdrop, you don't have to do that. You just sign up at blockchain.com um, and you'll start to see a, a steady stream of brand new tokens that do all kinds of incredible things uh, start to populate your wallet and you can start using them right away without having to pay any money. So that's interesting to me because airdrops did appear sort of after the initial fear that came around of, oh, well, maybe these things are securities, maybe these tokens are being issued like securities. Maybe if we just gave them away um, you know, in an airdrop, that might simplify it. But they, that sort of fell away a little bit, or at least I, I perceive there to be a lot less of them. Do you see there being a great deal of value in that? And, and what's, the, what's the upside to the token issuer and what's the upside to the, the wallet holder? Yeah, um, I think that there's a tremendous value for the token creator, right? These networks live and die by decentralization. These networks live and die with network effects. Uh, the more people that have a particular token, the more valuable each person's particular token. Um, and so for a token creator, on day one, if you've created a, a network that you know to be valuable, a, a network that you think is going to change the world, well... It's not going to happen if you and three other of your co-creators own all of the crypto, if they own all of the tokens, right? So what blockchain can offer, um, and there are limitations to this, but the vision is that an issuer can achieve decentralization of their blockchain overnight. 30 million wallets, that's, that's, that's a significant impact on well, the market. Because you've got right? the distribution there. Because we do the distribution. And it's not just the number, it's just not the number of wallets, it's the kind of wallets that they are. All of our users self-custody. So when you come to blockchain, you hold on to your own money. You don't give it to us like you do with the exchanges and you know, ask us permission to spend it, which is what everyone else does. With blockchain, you can be your own bank. That's our registered trademark, we believe in it, it's one of our mottos. Uh, and that's what's so powerful about using blockchain as a distribution platform, which exchanges could never do because they are custodial primarily. You would see why a policymaker or a regulator would be really worried if people could be their own bank. It's, it's like this convenient way of hoarding cash in the attic or under the mattress, right? It, but cash had this problem of, like, getting it into briefcases and moving it around the world was hard. Um, but if, if there are a lot of non-custodial wallets, it's really hard to see you know, if illicit activity is occurring, if money is going to a sanctioned country. Uh, there, there would be real concerns there that somebody would create an airdrop, distribute it to a whole bunch of wallets, and then you know, use that as a way of moving uh, money around and or uh, use these non-custodial wallets. What, what's your response to that? How do you get policymakers and regulators comfortable with, with that position? Realistically, I mean, Regulators and policymakers never ask that question because they've studied crypto and they know that the whole point of crypto is in fact self-custody, right? It's not to create a whole new set of intermediaries and rebuild Wall Street back on blockchains again. There's no power in that. There's nothing attractive about that. That's not what's won the hearts and minds of the crypto faithful since 2011 when we got started. Uh, there have always been more custodial wallets than not more non-custodial wallets than custodial wallets there's always been more money 
in non-custodial wallets than custodial wallets, and that will forever be the case. So really, those are two completely separate issues. The issues around, you know, how do we do AML on a blockchain, and how do we uh, prevent um, uh, how do we prevent sanctions crimes on a blockchain? Those are all very important questions, but they have absolutely nothing to do with airdrops. The, the, the powerful thing about airdrops from the creator's perspective, as we talked about, is the ability to decentralize your network immediately, to supercharge decentralization. Um, but there's more. There's also legal benefits, which is kind of bizarre to think, and it's true, that decentralization has become a term of art over the last two years. I mean, have you asked us seven years ago uh, that regulator, whether regulators would be asking whether your network was decentralized? You would have said, what, what on earth are you talking about? But now we see it in both the money services laws, right? In FinCEN's guidance in 2013, they said decentralized networks don't have money transmitters. They don't have administrators. Uh, centralized networks have an administrator. They have a money transmitter at the top. Obviously, if you're an entrepreneur, you want to be decentralized, not centralized. Same thing now in the securities framework, right? We have uh, Bill Hinman, the director of the Division of Corporation Finance at the SEC, giving his personal opinion, but obviously he's an important guy and what he has to, he's considered opinion. And he, and, he, and he gave us a heuristic, not a legal test, but a heuristic, a way of, of helping, to, uh, helping to understand whether uh, a token is, decent, is a security or not. What is that test? The decentralization test. And there's a number of different factors that go into decentralization. One of them is, of course, how many different people own your token. Indeed, and if you can airdrop it, you may end up with a sufficiently decentralized Howie coin. But the question then is, uh, what, is what defines sufficiently decentralized at that point? And I guess an airdrop kind of pushes you further into sufficiently decentralized if you have lots of non-custodial wallets and you can say, well, it's gone to 30 million, pretty decentralized at, at that point. Um, that's, that's probably a fair point. But there's got to be a question about, well, they've got them, but are they using them? And there's always been been that sort of, sort of question. So that's the airdrops piece. I do want to follow back up on the um, the separate point, probably, uh, you rightly say, away from airdrops, but more, more generally. As we're talking about decentralization, do we move into a, a Wild West world in which the, the role of the administrator that was there before of managing fraud risk, of managing money laundering risk has completely gone or does it just change shape and, and there's still a way to mitigate and manage those risks even if a lot of people are being their own bank? Yeah, I think there are ways to manage that risk and, and, and more importantly than just what I think, we've actually seen it borne out historically, right? So if you could have a decentralized digital money that was not transparent, that didn't have the kind of transparency that you were talking about when we, when we first started this discussion. We'd probably have a real problem on our hands with regulators. I gotta tell you, I go to the Interpol or the Europol uh, conference on digital currencies every year, and every year the message is the same. Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, Ether, these sort of open permissionless ledgers that actually have blockchains that you can read, they're comfortable with this. Law enforcement around the world is more or less comfortable with these, uh, with these blockchains that you can actually see transactions on. It's a tougher sell for some of the privacy coins. And because law enforcement is a little more nervous about it, because those, unfortunately, are more or less opaque to law enforcement, 
there's more regulatory scrutiny around the platforms that support them. You can perform KYC on a wallet, right? So I, I could say that um, somebody who's go, uh, using privacy coins but that had declared their keys with some sort of uh, custodial wallet provider and or had declared their keys somewhere else as being them and linking it to a legal identity. That is possible, but that's a different position when you have uh, a non-custodial wallet that then hasn't had KYC performed on it. You can see why regulators might be concerned about that, but I, but I know there are um, many considered thoughts on, on how you can manage it. So let's, well, there let's are considered thoughts on that, and, and, and one of the most important is that you know this is ex these are exactly the concerns raised with the formation and the birth of the internet, right? IP addresses are completely anonymous. How will we ever unmask people behind IP addresses? Um, we found a way, and it wasn't because we uh, demanded additional controls over KYC and AML. It's because of old-fashioned detective work. And that's what, you, that's what we're a British company, and so you know, Europol in, 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 uh, in particular, we do a lot of work with. And they, the time after time, year after year, they said, look, we can use uh, blockchain forensics to figure out what we need to find out for open, transparent legislation. And we're sitting at Money 2020, which is a pretty big payments conference, and there's been a lot of bankers and uh, the Cybos conference is happening at the same time. Uh, we saw uh, last week that JP Morgan announced their IIN initiative, um, the something information network, I can't remember what it's called. Um, and, and essentially what they were trying to do is bring a blockchain to swift payments uh, of sort, just to provide that traceability and manage some of the problems that you have in the banking system, which today I try and send money to the other side of the world and I don't know when it's going to get there. I don't know how much it's going to cost when it does get there. And I don't know what route it's going to take to get there. So like, I just have so much uncertainty in the existing banking system. So you start to see, you know, like this the perception people have of the world of crypto may need realigning because it, if anything, it's wildly transparent uh, to the point where like, if you want to get caught laundering money, use Bitcoin to do it because that record is there permanently for, for everybody to see. And law enforcement has the rest of eternity to figure out what happens. It's kind of interesting. What, what we've seen is that uh, blockchains tend to shift uh, uh, shift the risk for criminals to uh, traceability. So they, they can be a good uncensored, uh, uncensorable money, right? So you can evade sanctions and that kind of things. We, we assume that it happens, even though there's not a whole lot of evidence that it happens on mass today. Uh, but once you've done it, Wow, you better have you know extradited yourself to the moon because there is there is there's a trail that law enforcement constantly uses uh, and has used over the years very publicly um, to find out exactly what happened and who did it. We 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 saw this in the U.S. with the allegations of Russian meddling uh, being financed by Bitcoin. They got caught. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. So um, you've obviously been a veteran of this space for, for a little while and uh, you were talking to uh, kind of the general counsel for the U.S. Department of the Treasury. Uh, what do you think the, the sort of the most topical challenges for the U.S. in particular around sort of uh, the management of tokens at, at this point and the issuance of tokens? Where, where are we at in that debate? Do you think the, the debate's done and um, is the ICO over and the security token being born? Like wh where are we at in that sort of narrative? You know, I obviously, I you know, I was a, a co-author of the SAFT project white paper, and it, it it was it was the first real self-regulatory reaction to pre-functional token sales, also known as ICOs. Uh, we we wanted to provide an alternative to people. A year after we published the white paper, like we were talking about, the the frequency of people doing these pre-functional token sales ICOs in the U.S. just dropped off the map. People start stopped doing it. They started using SAFTs or 
documents like SAFs that were called something else. They essentially said, look, if this thing doesn't work yet, we're going to treat it like security. What that had the effect of, it was actually unfortunate for people like me who are true crypto believers and wanted to democratize this stuff. It had the effect of concentrating power back in the hands of accredited investors, and it gave them that same edge in crypto that they had in the rule of in the world of uh, restricted securities like Reg D private placements, like what Silicon Valley uses to invest in companies. And that's one of these like unfortunate consequences that's kind of informed the last year uh, of crypto sales. So regulation has shaped the way that these things work and the way that these things uh, are done. But you know the story is not nearly over. The, the great controversy that we have today is uh, and something that I hoped we'd talk about this morning, but it's a pretty nuanced issue, as important as it is for, for people who uh, are involved in this, our token sales money transmission. We had a letter uh, by the US, penned by the U.S. Treasury to Congress saying, yes, ICOs are money transmitters and they need to register. Uh, which uh, is, is absolutely not the case uh, according to the, the law, if you believe what SEC said, which is ICOs are mostly security sales. Because, of course, if you're selling a security, you cannot, by definition, be engaged in money transfer. Well, I, I think this is probably a challenge coming back to the anti-money laundering and preventing sanctions piece, because if you're a money transmitter, you are subject to the laws around uh, know your customer uh, and anti-money laundering and money laundering prevention uh, and customer due diligence and everything that comes with that. So it feels like as an observer that I am, uh, that there's a bit of a, almost a, a hack going on that says, well, if we just push them into that box, then they'll be subject to those rules. And our concerns that we have around people potentially laundering money would, would go away, even though it doesn't necessarily fit. Um, and we've seen other global approaches that are quite different. Japan wrote um, bespoke uh, regulation and legislation uh, specifically to deal with tokens and they decided to whitelist different tokens but we've seen that's been reasonably successful um, and there are other approaches out there uh, as you look at the global kind of uh, response where do you where do you think the responses are more and less uh, effective I guess it's always a um, well, an interesting challenge we should be clear about one thing right if you do a token sale and you're selling a security FinCEN still gets his information you still like when like, FinCEN has a lot of different agencies feeding it information, whether, uh, whether it's the IRS through audits, uh, whether you've registered as an MSB, or whether there's a broker-dealer involved, or if you're an issuer and it's a publicly traded security, like, you don't, it's not a hack, right? You can't fall out of uh, the AML bucket just by doing an ICO, right? You're either breaking the law or you're not. But, uh, but I, so. I sense what my comment about it being a hack was uh, that... There is a, a concern, I think, at a, a different level um, that uh, there is no, there are no rules, and it's the, the wild west. And I'm yeah. doing air quotes, which listeners can't see. But um, and this would allay that concern rather than solve the underlying problem itself. Yeah. <laughs> so we don't ask Banana Republic. To, there's people walking around in polo shirts. So I'm using Banana Republic as an example. But like, we don't ask Banana Republic to do AML. We demand that they do. Uh, that they don't break the sanctions laws, just like we demand everybody do that, right? But when you're selling a consumer good, um, there's no anti-money laundering rules that apply directly in terms of you know Bank Secrecy Act and having to know your customer and that and that sort of thing. So what we've done as a society is recognize the cost of doing AML and put it on the people who we think are at highest risk 
of engaging or facilitating money laundering. And those are the, those are the intermediaries, the custodians. They're not the sellers of um, you know, consumer goods and that sort of thing. But you had a good question around like the, like the international yeah, and that global response piece, um, I think, is interesting because you've seen I, the U.S. My perspective on it had been that it's very much kind of like used a law where it already existed and tried to apply that to where the risk popped up. Uh, whereas in Japan, they've bes they've bespoke something. We've seen Malta and Gibraltar have bespoke uh, created bespoke regulation. Um, you've seen China that's taken a rather different approach, which is you know try and close everything down more or less. Uh, and then Europe has kind of adopted very much a wait and see approach. Where do you think uh, you know, what's what's the best of all worlds, and, and what are you what are your reflections on the differences in those approaches? You know, I I got to tell you, I rarely say this, but the U.S. got it right. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't say <laughs> I don't defend U.S. regulatory policy very often. When I was a lawyer, I certainly did, didn't do that. I represented my clients, not the government. But when it came to crypto. The U.S. focused on application-based regulation, not technology-specific regulation, which is the absolute right direction. So from a directional perspective, they got it right. And then when you get into the weeds and you start looking granularly at it, the things, the kind of activities that they ended up regulating, more or less the right regulation. They, they regulated custodians and intermediaries. Right? If you look at um, the, the software wallets out there, right? for example, they, they do everything on-chain. All the information that the software wallets have is by definition public. Now, the Coinbase's of the world, the Bittrex's, et cetera, the Gemini's of the world, you know, the, the overwhelming majority, 90-something percent of their transactions are all happening privately in closed, walled gardens where the government has, has no visibility, where law enforcement has no visibility unless they're subject to anti-money laundering rules. So, um, you know, is the U.S. approach perfect? No. but. <laughs> It makes a lot of sense, and, it, and I'm glad to see Europe not follow, but mostly you know, take the same sort of principles, risk-based approach among, in the fifth anti-money laundering. Yeah, the fifth anti-money laundering directive, and we've seen now the AMF in France has started to look at a um, similar approach from a securities perspective. Uh, and in even uh, conversations recently about you know, how can we create a, a broader framework, and yet at the same time you're seeing Malta and Gibraltar kind of really be out there in front of it. And if you read the uh, regulation documents, these aren't light documents You know that you're required to do an awful lot of stuff to, to pass their rules. So um, here's hoping that that brings some control to the space. And um, you know, as an optimist, I really hope that we can see some of this democratization of access to investment. Um, so it's going to be interesting to watch for sure. Um, Marco, thank you very much for being on Blockchain Insider. Thanks for having me. I love that we can do like an in-depth in the weeds discussion on these important topics. I appreciate that. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me. So this episode is brought to you by R3. Uh, Corda is the only blockchain platform that removes costly friction in business transactions. That's hard to say, and I don't know if they're the only one, um, but it does enable institutions to transact directly using smart contracts while ensuring the highest levels of privacy and security. Um, <laughs> I love this one. Corda was recently described as compelling but strange. I, I, I think that's very true of Todd McDonald. Um, and, and at R3, they tend to agree. It's certainly compelling. Um, and I think it was Gideon... 
Greenspan that did that review is a really good blog post. Uh, he kind of breaks down the quarter architecture and he just goes, it's really, really compelling, but it's really, really strange. Um, and it's, it, it's a really good technical sort of teardown of everything that it works uh, and how it works. Um, so R3 built the world's only blockchain platform suited to um, businesses in every industry, they say, um, with 100% interoperability between the open source and enterprise versions. It's truly unique. Um, <laughs> you can unlock the power of blockchain for your business. Head on over to r3.com for more on the Corda platform and request a free 60-day trial of Corda Enterprise. Welcome to Money 2020 Blockchain and Cryptocurrencies. I hope you guys are enjoying yourself. We have an amazing session next. Today has been uh, great, and uh, as we hear more about what's happening in the industry, uh, the most pivotal topic among them all is probably our next session. Uh, it's the bedrock on which everything stands, and that topic is regulation. Regulation is evolving but remains patchy with uncertainty on issues ranging from exchanges and ICOs to securities laws. In this session, Marco Santori, the Dean of Blockchain Lawyers, and Brent McIntosh, General Counsel at the U.S. Department of Treasury, provide insights into the future of regulation and how investors should respond to this uncertainty. Please welcome our moderator, Tanya Mashil, from, uh, reporter from Cheddar, and uh, also Brent McIntosh, General Counsel, U.S. Department of the Treasury, and Marco Santori, President and Chief Legal Officer at Blockchain. Thank you, and uh, please welcome. Okay. Thanks, Ian. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Um, I want to get straight into it because we only have 30 minutes. Um, Ian has made introductions. Marco to my left, Brent next to him. Um, and if you guys want to say a very brief hello and just, you know, your background, how long you've been in this space and how long you've been covering. Thank you. Following. Sure. Uh, my name is Marco Santori. I am the President and Chief Legal Officer at Blockchain. Blockchain is the world's uh, largest wallet service uh, with almost 30 million wallets all around the world right now. Um, and uh, before that, uh, I was a partner at a law firm called Cooley, where I was a co-author of a paper you may have read, uh, the SAFT Project white paper. And it's something that's become a bit of a, a market standard in a very small segment of the economy. I'm Brent McIntosh. I'm the general counsel at the U.S. Department of the Treasury. I've been in that job for about 14 months. Um, this is one of the many topics uh, we work on at Treasury, spanning the the, uh, the range of Treasury topics from tax tax to uh, sanctions to the uh, uh, domestic finance world. Um, and prior to joining the Treasury, I was a partner at Sullivan and Cromwell, a law firm. So we're here to talk about ICOs, airdrops, and the future of regulating decentralized money. Uh, I want to start with airdrops, and I want to start with Marco, because blockchain had some very interesting news come out last week. So if you could tell us a little bit about that, um, and for those who may not be that familiar, just sort of break down what airdrops are. Sure. So um, let's see. Just, just now, our MC uh, said we were going to answer all the questions that are important to investors, and I'm not going to do that because airdrops are not about investors. They are about users, people who want to take, uh, take functional control over their cryptocurrency. Uh, and so we announced last week uh, the airdrops program, the blockchain airdrops program. We published uh, a short explainer, a short white paper that sort of 
talks through the benefits that we think airdrops have for token creators and the benefits that airdrops have for token users. Um, in sum, an airdrop is pretty simple. If someone's going to create the next, uh, the bigger and better Bitcoin, or maybe a virtual currency or cryptocurrency that does something other, something new, besides uh, just serve as a store of value or a medium of exchange, um, what happens to be in fashion right now is those, those token creators ab initio creating you know, millions or billions of dollars worth uh, of that token, and then keeping some of it and selling it to the public as a fundraising mechanism. Um, the last year or two of my career has been dedicated to thinking through potential alter alternatives to that. We all know what that thing is. It's called an ICO. Um, an airdrop is one potential alternative, or it's something that can be done in addition to an ICO, where that creator, instead of selling those tokens to the public or selling that blockchain asset to the public, will give it away for free. Um, and we at blockchain have a unique ability to facilitate that because our wallets are self-custodial. Unlike the exchanges, if uh, you have uh, a wallet at blockchain, we don't have your keys, we don't have your private keys, we never accept your money or send it on your behalf. We give you software so that you can do it yourself. And you can always come back to our website or use our app to access that, uh, that, that crypto. In an airdrop, the creator will airdrop that crypto directly to you, directly to your private keys, so that we're not holding onto it for you. And uh, we're gonna be doing quite a bit of that over the, well, over the course of our existence as a company. And I think that um, it's something that could be very, very powerful. So check it out, blockchain slash airdrops. And Brent, are you familiar with airdrops? Is that something that's on your radar or at your department? So this is, uh, I, I am familiar now. I've talked to Marco about it. Um, this is ICOs, airdrops. Um, this is an area where the federal government um, needs to take a set of principles that it, um, it has applied for many years and determine how they're going to apply um, to a variety of new uh, technologies and uh, financial innovations. Uh, things like our commitment to, uh, to the protection of investors um, when, a, when a crypto asset is actually security. Things like ensuring that crypto assets are not used for illicit finance, for the financing of terrorism, uh, for money laundering. And so it, it is a, it, it, this is a phenomenon we're familiar with and one we are working through as a, as a government to determine how we think about uh, all these innovations in the constellation of, of financial services issues. Um, so I'm a reporter, and I've actually known Marco for a very long time. And uh, before you joined blockchain, what I might do is call you up and ask you, should something like airdrops be you know, considered money transmission or regulated like a money transfer? Yeah. yeah. Um, Feel free to jump in here. And Brett. since you're not my client, and none of you uh, are my clients, for your, uh, free, just important disclaimer, uh, and this is not legal advice, and you shouldn't uh, take it as such. <laughs> That said, here's what you do. Uh, no, the, um, no, the, uh, <laughs> so look, the, the Bank Secrecy Act, like the Securities Act, like, like a number of other um, important regulatory um, issues in the US, calls for a facts and circumstances analysis. Um, when a token issuer creates tokens, creates something of value, that sort of out of thin air, um, you know, from the, in the traditional sense, uh, mines a Genesis block, uh, pre-mines, whatever it might be, uh, and 
has tokens that came from nowhere. Um, FinCEN actually has a little bit of guidance on this, and I, I won't ask you to articulate FinCEN's guidance, so even though we have the expert here. Don't. Um, FinCEN came, gave, gave guidance on this back in 2014. They said, look, if you are mining or otherwise creating currency and then distributing it directly, there's transmission, but there's no acceptance. And money transmission under the Bank Secrecy Act requires two things. It oftentimes requires three parties, but not always. At minimum, it requires two things, the acceptance and the transmission. And in an airdrop, if you're accepting and then transmitting, well, potentially, or I should say in a token creation or a token distribution process, if you're both accepting and transmitting, that could be money transmission, but we don't usually see that. What we usually see is uh, network creators creating tokens ab initio and then distributing them. And uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a piece of guidance from FinCEN that actually says that activity um, is not money transmission on behalf of the actual token creator. Um, now, to the airdrops program, well, we have to have a way of making sure that when we airdrop a token to our 30 million wallets, there's not one person behind a computer or with a server farm somewhere uh, or a click farm somewhere spinning up thousands and thousands of wallets um, just to get a bunch of free crypto. And so we'll have to introduce some form of uh, proof of nose, right? Making sure that one, one wallet is one person. It's not a Bank Secrecy Act requirement, but we have to make sure that there aren't people sock puppeting or civil uh, attacking us just to try to make uh, their credentials look like there's more than one person behind them. So it, it, a lot of the process looks kind of similar to a regulated BSA KYC activity, but it's actually, it's actually different. Um, well, let's zoom out a little bit. Uh, Brent, can you just uh, tell us a little bit about how your department or how the federal government is looking at this space at cryptocurrencies, um, specifically versus blockchain, because a lot of the things that we see don't sort of fit into any one category. Is it, yeah. is it a currency? Is it a commodity, right. a security? Um, so how do you deal with that? Yeah, an entirely fair question. I actually think to start that, you have to zoom out even farther and, and, and say, how, how is the federal government thinking about financial regulation generally? Because it's not like we have a crypto-specific set of principles. We have, a, we have a set of core principles for financial regulation, which are articulated in an executive order issued in February of 2017. And, and those core principles are how we think about all financial regulation, including the crypto space. Those are things like empowering Americans to make informed, independent financial choices, uh, uh, fostering economic growth through vibrant uh, financial markets uh, with uh, regulation that is subject to rigorous regulatory impact assessment. Um, working uh, to make sure that U.S. financial institutions can compete globally, working to make sure that when we interact with uh, international standard-setting bodies, we are leading and advancing U.S. interests in those bodies, and then making sure that our regulation of, of whatever we regulate in the financial services sector is efficient, effective, and tailored to the purpose for which we're regulating. So when you take that set of core principles, and you map them onto crypto assets, blockchain, fintech more broadly, you, in particular with regard to crypto, 
you come to realize that there, there is immense capacity for, uh, for innovation and for beneficial uh, te technological innovation. Um, there is the potential for U.S. companies to really lead in this space. There is the potential for the U.S. to work with its partners um, to, to, bring, uh, to bring its partners along on certain principles that we want to effectuate in this space. But then there are a set of, uh, I'll call them enduring imperatives, that regardless of technology, uh, we want to vindicate. Um, and those are, I, I uh, mentioned them earlier. One is, this, the, the space should not become a safe haven for illicit finance, for the financing of terrorism, for money laundering, for sanctions evasion. Um, it, that that is a is an imperative that we feel the need to push. That that's true of the cash economy. That's true of the digital economy. That's true of the crypto economy. Second, um, there there's no better way to ensure the lack of adoption of these new technologies than to make them not safe for consumers and investors. And I, I know Marco agrees with us. So. From our perspective, the consumer uh, protection laws are essential here, and they, they have a set of imperatives that are not specific to the technology, and we feel the need to apply them here as well. And so that's why you see the SEC and the CFTC and the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau active in this space. Um, and then we feel the need to uh, make sure that uh, what we're doing, we're uh, working in lockstep with our foreign partners. There are lots of there are, there are countries that are advanced in this space, um, South Korea, Japan, Australia. There are others that are not. Um, and so we are working to make sure that uh, we can pre prevent or combat regulatory arbitrage and make sure that those, uh, those fundamental imperatives that we want to apply, regardless of technology, apply here and are applied by our allies. Um, I'll put this to both of you. ICOs, airdrops, what seem to be some of the biggest concerns in those areas? And actually, Marco, specifically for you, um, you're at blockchain, you're the president, and you know, as you were rolling out and doing the media around the airdrops offering, uh, is there anything that you, I guess, are trying to get ahead of that you think could be an issue or like, could definitely be an issue for a competitor of yours? So I think that... <clears throat> When you, when you take a look at the airdrops program, when you read the, the, air, the, the, the blockchain airdrops white paper that we published, there are a few themes that sort of jump out at you. And one of them is that, well, there are a lot of ways to get crypto if you're a consumer and if you're somebody that actually wants to use it and try it out. But most of them that exist today are troublesome in a lot of important ways. You can, you can buy crypto on an exchange, right? That's how a lot of people have gotten crypto, but um, that requires, well, buying it, right? You have to pay money. Um, you, can, um, you can mine crypto, but that also requires paying money, and it's an even higher level of difficulty. On an exchange, look, you're sometimes limited by jurisdictions. <clears throat> sometimes you're limited by jurisdictions. You might be limited by the kinds of identification that you have. Um, but mining is even, you know, in order of magnitude harder, an order of magnitude harder way to get crypto. Um, and then, of course, if you really want to try something new, you can buy crypto in an ICO or a token sale. And, of course, that's usually even more expensive and more dangerous because, well, 
a lot of these sales are, uh, well, none of these sales really, the sales of pre-functional tokens have standards for them. So you can send your Ether or your Bitcoin off into the void and you don't really know who this organization is. Um, it can be even more expensive and even more complex. We think that airdrops are a, actually a great way to address that. They're free. You sign up for a blockchain wallet. Um, we'll be announcing our first airdrop soon, but you know there's going to be more after that. So you can think of blockchain as a platform for trying out new crypto, something trying out valuable things that you couldn't get otherwise. Um, that means no investor risks. You're never giving up your money. Uh, it means no consumer risks because you never have to go to, you know, use uh, an offshore exchange uh, to get your exotic token that isn't carried on the large U.S. exchanges. It means it's easy as pie. You just sign up and give your email address. Um, we think that a lot of the risks that are usually, um, a, a lot of the risks that come along with getting into crypto, we can mitigate a lot of those just by giving the stuff away for free. And obviously that's great for users, but when you're a network creator, it's even better. I mean, decentralization has become a term of art in the law. Uh, de decentralization is now a part of the securities laws, right? Uh, just just a, a month or two ago, Bill Hinman, the director of the Division of Corporation Finance at the SEC, um, gave us a test, a heuristic, not a legal test, but a heuristic for what what uh, he individually, as a very important person in the SEC, thinks about um, how you can tell whether a token is a security or not. And, one of, and that test is called decentralization. One of the um, elements of that test is how many people hold your token? How many people hold your coin? With blockchain, that could be 30 million um, overnight. And that's, that, that's, that's powerful. That is a powerful way to put take tokens and, and crypto and things that are valuable out of the hands of just the few and give them to the many who would actually use it. Not invest and speculate, but actually use. What do we think? Uh, sorry, did you sorry, want to? Sorry, I, I just want to follow on that. It, this, is, um, this space is very much like law school. Because every time you feel like you have a one-size-fits-all answer, someone tweaks the hypothetical a little bit. <laughs> um, and so I would urge people to read Bill Hinman's speech, actually. Bill's the director of corporate finance at the SEC. Um, because the, you'll see the nuance and complexity necessary to apply what is a very age-old standard for what is a security. Um, and, and the set of questions Bill posits uh, for, that are relevant to that, I don't want to speak for, for Bill or for the SEC, but they are, they are an interesting and nuanced set of questions. And it seems like every time we feel like we, uh, we as a society, not we as a government, have an answer to the question, is this a security or not, someone tweaks the hypothetical a little bit. And, um, and then we have to reevaluate those set of criteria. Well, SEC is, is, is now uh, trudging through the same gauntlet that Treasury went through in 2013, right? right. When, when Treasury, well, when FinCEN in, in particular released the 2013 guidance, you know, the whole crypto world lost, lost their minds because they didn't understand what the law was or even that it existed or applied. Um, and then sort of FinCEN went through, and FinCEN, by the way, is a bureau of, of the Department of the Treasury that we have with us here today. Um, uh, and they administer the, the Bank Secrecy Act and the Patriot Act, among other acts, calling for KYC and money transmitter status. But when they re re released the first guidance in 2013, uh, you know, they had a, a snapshot of what the world of crypto was. Um, now, fast forward to 2018, you look back on that, it's amazing how much of that 
is evergreen and, make, and still makes sense as, as in terms of a sound principles-based approach. And you compare that to the bit that, that has not aged well and it looks like FinCEN was responding to what just ended up being a trend, right? And there's been guidance to refine and put uh, color on, on a lot of the stuff that hadn't aged as well. There's been guidance since then, but now SEC is, ha is having to do that. SEC has to take a, a snapshot of the world as it exists today and um, try to identify the risks that exist today, predict the risks that are going to exist tomorrow, and regulate. And that's, um, man, that is, that is a challenge. That is what's, the, the evergreen part is that everything changes. Right. Yeah, I was saying to Brent backstage, it's not, it's not just, um, and I remember in 2013 that FinCEN guidance, and it's not just you know, Bitcoin anymore or Bitcoin versus blockchain. It's all of these new things, and I can only imagine that in the next 10 years we'll be talking and having these debates about so many things we've never heard of before. Um, so I guess, Brent... So you're going through this long-term, never-ending expectation—not uh, expectation, exploration—and I guess what happens after that, and when? Like, what in the world would make you guys come out and be like, "This is the rule from now on," or "This is the framework"? Well, regulation is never static in that way. But uh, I, what I would say is, uh, well, stepping back a bit. Um, Treasury this year put out a, a report, uh, one of a series of reports that's done on, on reforming financial regulation. That was on, um, the, our last report was on fintech uh, because we realized while we were doing reports on, for example, traditional banks and credit unions, asset management, things like that, that we really needed to cover uh, fintech. And so we put out a report which had a certain set of themes in it, um, things like uh, 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 working to empower responsible innovation, working to uh, combat regulatory fragmentation, which is always a challenge in the United States because as a fundamental constitutional principle, the states have a lot of power. In addition, we have a fragmented set of uh, regulators at the federal level in that we have three banking regulators and two markets regulators and now a, a Bureau of Consumer Financial Protection. Um, working to make sure that when we do regulations, when we promulgate new regulations, when we revise old regulations and review whether they need to be revised, that we're doing so in a way that doesn't thwart innovation, that's technology neutral and doesn't depend on a certain state of the world, so that we're not using analog regulation in a digital world. And, and last, working to ensure that we could uh, empower regulators and the private sector to engage in collaborative regulatory experimentation through, uh, through regulatory sandboxes where um, we'll work with states and federal regulators and our international partners to give people uh, entrance into, whether it's startups or the largest banks, space to uh, experiment with complying with regulatory obligations in, in innovative ways. Um, What's not covered in our FinTech report is crypto and blockchain, uh, because we realized in drafting that report that the space was so new, uh, evolving, revolutionary, uh, that it deserved its own, uh, its own review. 
And so uh, my boss, the Secretary of the Treasury, uh, through the Financial Stability Oversight Council, convened a working group. The Financial Stability Oversight Council is a Dodd-Frank innovation that has um, is the, the various uh, financial and markets regulators from the federal government plus uh, a variety of state actors. So we've convened a working group there to attempt to get the federal government thinking in a unified way, or at least a collaborative way, about how we think about the innovations of blockchain, crypto assets, uh, from a variety of different perspectives, whether it's the payment mechanism perspective, whether it's the money laundering threat perspective. And so that, that intensive effort is going on right now. Um, and it's, it, it is, I can tell you, it's, um, it's taking up a lot of time, as it should, because it's, it's a, a very valuable experience for all of us to get the regulators and the Treasury in a room together to think about these things in a way that, that we're talking to each other about how we should think about them. Because otherwise, we all think about them in our, in our own way. The, the SEC as a security, the CFTC as a commodity, the banking regulators as a, as a currency, FinCEN as a money laundering threat. So, um, I wanted to hit on this earlier, but we'll keep it brief. Uh, Marco, what do we think about um, just ICOs, definitely a lot of questions around their security status, but as a mini transmission vehicle? Yeah. Um, so like I, like I said, I've, I've dedicated the last couple of years to studying these things under, under the law, trying to find a way to empower token-based network creators without running afoul of the law, or at least by controlling the kinds of risks that, uh, controlling the kinds of risks that the laws uh, are designed to control for. Um, and the first step in that was the SAFT project framework, which was um, something that we published uh, in connection with uh, Protocol Labs uh, around this time last year, actually. And since then, it's become kind of a market standard, which, which we certainly think is a step in the right direction, but it's not for everybody, right? Uh, to token sales, in, in particular, pre-functional token sales, are mostly for investors. Um, and that's what's delivered a lot of value over the last year for some and quite little value uh, for others. We thought, well, if what's really happening here is um, uh, an exploratory era and we're sort of learning what crypto is good at and what it's not good at, and if there are retail individuals that have to be involved in that process, why not do it in a way that doesn't cost them any money? Why not do it in a way where people aren't like Cashing, uh, cashing in student loans and credit card debt and going into credit card debt to purchase tokens they think they're going to go to the moon and make them, you know, give them Lambos and all that. Like it's, that's, there's nothing wrong with people trying to do that, right? We're, we're in Las Vegas right now. Uh, but that's not for everybody, right? There are, there are a lot of people, when, when, you, when you say, hey, I'm going to Las Vegas, they go, oh, better you than me. And I think that that's the same way that a lot of people feel about token sales. Um, but look, people would like to try these things out. They would, they would like to use crypto, um, but they're not, they're not trying to speculate. And that is, that is something very powerful. It's very powerful for token creators because they can get their hands, they can get their, they can get their tokens into the hands of so many people um, without uh, doing a token sale. But you know what we've seen over the last 
uh, year or so is this consolidation of token sales anyway into the hands of mostly accredited investors. And we've seen that as a, as a reaction and sometimes as an overreaction to existing law. Um, and this is something, airdrops are something that, unlike ICOs, are not going to face that kind of pressure. Rightfully, they shouldn't because the investor-like risks aren't there. Uh, you touched on this a little bit earlier, Brent, but it seems like there are several countries that have aggressively um, catapulted themselves as sort of leaders in this space. And the U.S. isn't one of them right now, but is that on the table for us? I don't, I don't, I don't agree with that, actually. I think if you look at, for example, um, thinking about how uh, a set of laws that, we, that have been in place apply in this space, we actually are pretty forward-leaning in terms of, you know, the SEC is out. There was a time, I think, when people thought crypto was a synonym for immune from the rule of law. And over the past five years, you have, you have FinCEN saying, no, if you are a money transmitter, the fact that you're a crypto money transmitter doesn't change your KYC and AML obligations. You have this SEC saying, if you're issuing what looks like a security and meets the, the Supreme Court's test for what is a security, it is a security. Um, you have the CFTC taking action here with regard to uh, cryptocurrency futures. You have OFAC, the Office of Foreign Assets Control, saying, uh, sanctions laws apply the same way to cryptocurrency as they do to, to regular currency. You are not allowed to evade sanctions laws. But we are working in addition with you know, our international partners on this. So, for example, just this week, the Financial Action Task Force, which is do dozens of countries that collaborate on money laundering uh, regulation, uh, and, and of which the United States currently holds the rotating presidency, came out with a statement uh, 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 saying that countries ought to have certain core uh, standards in place for virtual currency regulation um, and saying that and promising that where appropriate additional FATF guidance would be forthcoming. Um, and we've also worked with uh, you know, the G20 finance ministers to make this a, a priority for the G20 uh, to be thinking in a collaborative way. So we're trying to work with uh, both uh, ensuring that uh, traditional legal imperatives apply, and second, working with our foreign partners so that we can combat regulatory arbitrage here. Um, and going forward, I think there will, be, uh, there will be a continued review from FATF on the international side, uh, and you will see, in addition, that uh, both individual federal agencies, which have particular remits, will be working on those questions we talked about, as well as the federal government as a whole will be working to ensure that we are speaking in a unified way about, about where uh, blockchain and crypto fit uh, from our perspective in the constellation of financial services. What do you think, Marco? I'm actually really curious. Which way do you see that going? So the FATF has said that um, we, need, we need more harmonized standards. We need to combat um, regulatory arbitrage. Is the U.S. going to export its viewpoint, its policies on money transmission, for example, and uh, AML, or is the U.S. going to have to implement the way other countries view it? So are we going to have a 5 AMLD, or are they going to have a Bank Secrecy Act? Well, I, th I mean, that, that remains to be seen. I think that any time we work with the FAT, if it's a collaborative, uh, collaborative process, it's nice to be the president right now. Uh, but I would expect that there will be uh, some amount of... Uh, there, there certainly will be 
diversity in the way these things are applied. But ultimately, I think the principles underlying that uh, the, the desire to avoid the use of uh, crypto assets for illicit finance and for money laundering will uh, be implemented in all of those countries, even if in slightly different ways. Brent McIntosh, Marco Santori, thank you so much. Thanks to all of you for joining us today. Thank you so much. Thank you very much.